Well, in the Apostles' Creed, uh, which is confessed, I'm not, this thing says no signal, Paul. Can you do anything for me about that? Hello? Well, it's up there, so who cares about this? Apostles' Creed, confessed by millions of people every Sunday morning, in which we confess, I believe, in the forgiveness of sins. But, if we were all honest, while we might admit to believe in the forgiveness of other people's sins, we might not always be so quite so sure about our own sins. Um, we might struggle. It's not uncommon for Christians, for Christians to, to struggle um, over, to believe that their sins are really, really forgiven. Maybe you feel that way. So, it will be useful to spend a little time this morning on the subject of forgiveness. Let's turn to uh, Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Let's hear this word from God. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they may not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me uh, from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. <clears throat> now, the superscription, that is those little words that appear um, at the beginning of, of, of many of the Psalms in small print, uh, credits the authorship of this to King David of Old Testament fame. And, and we can be sure in this case that that is the truth because in Romans chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quotes from this very psalm and identifies it as having been written by David. That's good enough for me. 
Now, some suppose it was written in connection with his sin with Bathsheba. There's no certainty of that, although we know that that particular sin did weigh heavily on his heart. Um, And who doesn't know that that sin can, sin can weigh very heavily on our hearts, can it? Um, that, um, that's something that even m- modern secularist therapists um, might not, they might not want to use the word sin, you know, but they recognize that the powerful negative influence of, of moral guilt. It's not something you would just wash away and say, well, you know, we've gotten past that now, haven't we? Back in 1973, Carl Menninger, professor of Harvard Medical School, recipient of the prestigious Presidential Medal of Freedom and, and actually the founder of the, of the Menninger Clinic, wrote a seminal book entitled, Whatever Happened to Sin?, Now, maybe that book has since been removed from libraries and from Amazon.com by progressive woke publishers and cancel culture and internet guidelines and guardians, but but doesn't the the title tell tell us it all anyway? Whatever happened to sin? We may try to sort of dispose of the old-fashioned S word, but the fact remains, and the fact of the matter is, that that people are often weighed down by their moral failures. Sometimes, sometimes we feel guilty about bad things that we've, we've done. And, and it usually doesn't help very much to excuse it or uh, to tell ourselves it wasn't so bad or even for someone to come and say, well, you know, you really shouldn't feel guilty about this sort of thing. In our hearts, we might well know better. In this psalm, we can identify guilt as a three-stranded cord, a rope that's wrapped around us, choking us, dragging us down, uh, spoiling our conscience, uh, taking the brightness out of our day, ruining our relationship with God and with others. And, um, and yet it's answered in the same text by, by three responses that, that break the grip of sin on our lives and gives us hope in the forgiveness of God. Well, let's look at these. If I can make this perform here. There we go. The first strand that chokes us is the strand of the sin itself. Um, and, and I guess we should probably define sin. Now, what is sin? Let's... Let's make it easy on ourselves. You can turn to the Westminster Shorter Catechism in the back of your hymnal, which isn't in the pew. But you all know these things, and um, some of you already know the answer. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Which simply means that that, that sin is, is breaking God's law or failing to keep God's holy law, his Ten Commandments. Uh, the commandments worshipped uh, represent actually um, God's moral requirements. Um, and more than that, they actually represent the holiness uh, and, the, and the high moral character of God himself. Now, I'm not going to labor the fact 
that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm not going to remind you that all have sinned and there's no one righteous, not even one, and that the wages of sin is death. We all, we all know those things. We know that. But did you know that your sin and my sin is a very great offense and a personal offense uh, to directly against Almighty God. It alienates us. It separates us from God. You know, sometimes in a relationship, you, something goes wrong. You say, you know, something's come between us, honey. And, and, and we know what that is. It's some sort of argument or some sort of fight or some sort of problem. And, and what's come between us? Well, sin. And it's the same thing that comes between us and God. Um, it, it, puts it puts us at enmity with God. It, it, it puts us in conflict with God. God is very personally aware and offended by our individual sin. Um, I, I sort of updated this a little bit as I thought about this sermon. And, and I thought, you know, there are not a whole lot of young people here, but, but all of us were young people at one point, I trust. And um, so I, I want to use as an illustration uh, the pencil. Um, so I want you to think about your your. your third grade, fourth grade teacher. And she has pencils uh, on her desk that people can borrow. But she also has her own personal pencil. Well, what would happen if, you, if, if somebody came and stole that pencil? Not, not the, the little ones that are there for kids who forget their pencils, but the one, her own pencil. Maybe, maybe it's a special pencil. It's sitting right on her desk. It's her pencil. And someone stole that pencil. Well, she would... If someone took some of the other pencils and forgot to return them, that wouldn't be a big deal. But, but if you told her, you took her pencil, how would she feel? She would feel angry. She would feel personally affronted by it. Someone stole my own pencil. And, and it would be a very personal thing. And, and that's the way it is. You know, it's, it's not like those pencils in the post office. The ones, you know, on the chain that people... And, you know, you know, the postmaster general in Florida, somewhere in Washington, D.C., doesn't read this 40,000-page report and see that inventory of pens has been a little high and think, oh, it's, it's not personal. It's just people are always stealing those things, and that's it. That's not the way it is with God. The Lord is personally offended by our sin, and that's a problem. And this sin, um, and David's sin, if it was, in fact, the one we read about in some detail in Second Samuel, it involved adultery, it involved lying, it involved mercy, uh, or rather deception, murder, uh, just for starters. I mean, David sinned grievously against Bathsheba, against uh, her husband Uriah, against Joab, who he made an accomplice to uh, Uriah's murder. He sinned against his wife Abigail, against the nation of Israel, of, for whom he was appointed as their king, and who were scandalized, no doubt, by this. But, but above all, uh, he sinned against the Lord, who had saved him and installed him as king, and who had done nothing, nothing bad to him ever. Had always been gracious to him. Um, well, you see. Our sin, yours and mine, might not be quite so spectacular, if you can put it that way, as David's, but it's still an offense to God. Terrible enough, personal enough, 
to have demanded the offering up of the torturous suffering and death of his own beloved son. Remember the hymn. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, uh, nor suppose it great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. The crucifixion of Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the measure of our sin. Even if we don't feel the guilt of our sin, uh, we ought to. We ought to. Well, let's look at the second strand of, of, of sin. Uh, the first is the sin itself. The second is, is the strand of, of guilt, of silence, the silence of guilt. Uh, the late uh, Douglas Macmillan has a penetrating description of this. He says, you, you fall into sin and you find that your prayer chamber becomes a place where you cannot speak with God honestly. Uh, your prayers, uh, life has gone. The psalmist doesn't know what to say to God. He has no case to plead. He has no light, no peace, no, no prayer, no pathway back into the fellowship of the eternal God. The experience of sin leads to an experience of silence. David likens it uh, to, uh, to, to the hot summer, a sultry hot summer day when Nothing's moving. You sit. There's no air. And um, his strength is dried up. Um, That's where he's stuck. Uh, The guilt of silence, of our sin, silence that shuts down our relationship with God and others. When sin weighs down upon us, we, we may not even have the heart to pray, in other words, or to read the Scriptures or even attend church. Two of us don't know someone who's fallen into sin and the very place where they need to go, that is the church, they won't go. And you say, well, come on back to church. And they go, oh, I just don't have a Yeah. In other words, Christians can get stuck in sin. We harden our hearts toward God. We know we're out of sorts with Him. We know we're out of fellowship, but we're stubbornly silent. We we may actually become very disgusted with ourselves and be filled with condemnation, uh, tired of our sin, defeated by our sin. It seems like cheap grace just to come back to God just like that, right? I think it was Jack Miller who used to remind the congregation um, how before we fall into sin, as we stand at the very precipice of that sin, um, the devil comes and he says to us, you've done it, it's not a big deal, go ahead, you've done it a hundred times, but what happens when you, when you fall into it? Um, then you take the jump. And, you, and then you sit in guilty regret, wondering why you did it again, and, and wondering how in the world you're going to deal with it 
and speak with the Lord. And the devil comes. And now with an accusing voice, he says, you wretch, you did it a hundred times. And you expect that God is going to forgive you again? What makes you think he even hears your prayers? You have crossed the line, you loser. So sometimes we get angry with ourselves and even angry at God, like Adam and Eve, you know, in the garden. Well, Adam trying to put the blame on, on Eve. Uh, you know, the woman thou gavest me. But really, it was blaming God. You know perfectly well, your sin is not God's fault. But we fault him even so, and we're silent and we're miserable. Other times we might simply try to ignore the sin and move on, you know, without dealing with it. Well, just move on, you know, we'll just forget that. It doesn't usually work so well, particularly as you get older in Christ, you become a little more sensitive and a little more concerned about such things. We become hardened, we can become callous towards sin, and what's infinitely worse, callous toward God, with whom we fall silent. Well, let's look at the third, the third strand of sin, if the first two were not sufficient. The third strand that's choking us, that's killing us, it's drawing about our necks, and that is the, the sin of sorrow. We experience um, um, the sin itself, the silence, and the sorrow. Uh, the sorrow in this particular psalm appears in the 10th verse where uh, the psalmist says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. And that's true. The, and the Hebrew word there, sorrow means pain. It means suffering. And, and that's true, isn't it? How much we, 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 we sorrowful and suffer in our hearts. And, and we bring these things upon us by our sin. Especially, again, if you're a Christian, your conscience is tender. And uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit, which accuses you and badgers you, Sin, especially in the life of a Christian, always brings sorrow. Sometimes sorrows that result from the consequence of the sin. Something that we did and we pay the price. And we're sorrowful for that even. One consequence of David's sin, of course, was the loss of his infant child by Bathsheba, which was a great source of sorrow to him. Don't you know, sorrow doesn't accomplish anything by itself. Um, a penance by sorrow it doesn't help, does it? Um, the guilt and sorrow and the guilt of, of sin is not atoned for or lessened by our sorrow. We might suppose it was. We might suppose, well, if I just feel bad enough, long enough, then, I, then I'll merit going back to the Lord. Well, it, that's not the truth at all. God did not create us, brothers and sisters, to live this way. To be tied up like this. To be choked off. To be estranged from the Lord our God. To, to live in bondage to sin. Um, uh, and, and cold silence and sorrow. Uh, it's not the fellowship that uh, God delighted with in Adam and Eve before the fall. It is not the way it should be with a Christian and his Savior. It's not what God desires for us. In fact, as I mentioned, the good news is that even in this short psalm, God graciously answers all of these three deadly cords of bondage 
sin, silence, sorrow, by three especially graceful strands of pardon, confession, and rejoicing. Pardon, confession, and rejoicing. First, there's the pardon of, and, uh, and the, the unaccountable of forgiveness. Um, forgiveness is what we're reading about and been singing about this morning. Um, verse 1 and 2, Blessed uh, is the one, says David, um, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Uh, David, speaking to us uh, through the Word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses some important words there. Our sin is not just forgiven uh, in God's sight, it's gone. It's covered over. It's sponged away. That's hard to believe, isn't it? That's not the way it is with you and I. I mean, somebody may sin against you grievously and you may forgive them. You should forgive them. You must forgive them. But, but to forget about it? Yeah. That's a lot harder, isn't it? The memory is there. It's really, it can't all be taken away. But, but God can do something more. God can completely smother the sin and in his mind make it disappear. Uh, you don't have to believe me. Look at the scriptures. There are many promises. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So how far is the east from the west? You can't answer that question, by the way. There's no way. It's, 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 where does the east begin and the west end? It's, it's a... It's an immeasurable distance because God's love is immeasurable. And the measure of its immeasurability is the fact that he forgets our sins. Isaiah 38, 17, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, you, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Isaiah 40. 325, I, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake and I will remember, will not remember your sins. Or Jeremiah 31, 34, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. We understand that, don't we? When we read the Gospels, Jesus forgave sinners. It's the power of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is that powerful that it sponges away sin. Jesus says to the cripple in March 2, Man, your sins are forgiven. Over and over, he utters those words to people, some of whom probably don't even understand that they need their sins forgiven. He, even on the cross, he cries out just before his death, saying, Father, forgive them. These are the ones who are cursing him. They haven't changed their minds about him. They're still thumbing their noses at him. They hate him. They despise him. But he's still willing in his mercies to forgive their sins. He's not repelled by our ugly sin. I, I hope you've been hearing Pastor Ellis speak about this at the heart of Christ recently. He's not repelled. Rather, in fact, and this is beyond comprehension, he's drawn to us by our sin. The heart of his heart of confession is actually awakened 
in, uh, by our sins. The Pharisees, they backed away from unclean sinners. Whoa, no. But the Lord Jesus was drawn into their midst in love and compassion. It's my opinion that when our Lord famously urges us, saying, uh, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, he had in mind uh, the many troubles we bear and particularly perhaps the trouble and weight of our sin. This is so astounding. That God himself, the, the offended party who is deeply offended by our sin, in ways that we cannot even understand, is himself the one who secures our forgiveness. And he does it uh, at his own outrageous expense. He does it so thoroughly that it's forgotten and gone forever. That's what the Bible tells us from cover to cover. Our sin is no longer counted against us. It's covered by the blood of Christ and we're not ashamed to speak of it. We are declared forgiven. We're declared righteous. And that's a fact. Well, to answer the second strain, uh, pardon is the first strain. That breaks the bond of the sin itself. And then there's the, the second strand of silence uh, where we read about confession. Uh, the grace of God uh, that we, uh, by the grace of God that we, we, we answer angry, defeated silence with, with confession. David says in verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you. And what prayer might that be that the godly should offer to him? Well, it's a prayer of confession. Look at verse 5. I will confess my transgression to the Lord, David says. The Westminster Confession of Faith says uh, helpfully regarding repentance that men ought not to content themselves with a general uh, repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. In other words, it's not enough to say, oh Lord, forgive me my sin today. Thank you. Moving on. <laughs> we might need to be a little more specific about it and name that sin. And we might also need to speak with someone whom we've sinned against. Um, that's a very helpful thing. We are to seek the Lord when he may be found and call upon when he's near. The time to confess our sins is now. It's not later, it's now. Um, uh, as soon as we are aware of them, we come quickly to the Lord. That's what Christians do. John, 1 John says, if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus can, can, uh, cleanses us from all our sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's review. The first thing we do to escape this condemnation and the weight of guilt of sin is to remember that God offers to cover our sin. Jesus is the sin bearer and his blood is more powerful than you will ever understand. Secondly, with that knowledge and assurance, we now come before the Lord and make a good confession. 
We have assurance. We know who we received. You know, if, if, if the Lord God was a brute, and if Jesus was not very approachable, we might not dare to come, but we know otherwise. And so we come. We think, you know, <laughs> there's a God who forgives me, and I'm going to confess to him. It's not. Uh, it's God, after all, who we've offended, first of all. So we confess to him. And, and then, as I said, we may also need to forget to, uh, to confess to others, husbands or wives or children or people we live with. Sometimes we need to ask their forgiveness as well. But praise the Lord, we are, as I prayed earlier, the freest people on earth. We do not have to bear the weight of our sin and sorrow. The moment your sin appalls you, you can say in your heart, Oh God, I will confess it. And it's pardoned and done and gone. There are no conditions. There's no keeping count with God. There's no censoriousness before God. Just simple faith in the forgiveness and the blood of Christ. And sincere confession. And then finally, we come to... um, uh, the last strand of sorrow, or what answers the last strand of sorrow, uh, when we enter into rejoicing. And you know, I believe that it's really, that is what most completely cuts loose the cords of sin that bind and choke us. It sweeps away our sin. The worship and rejoicing. David says in verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the confessor, for confession is answered with forgiveness. But listen to that final verse, verse 11. Look at verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Did you hear that? He names us as upright in in heart. How is that possible? Well, it's impossible through the merciful, saving grace of God who covers uh, repentant, sin-confessing Christians with the saving blood of Christ, the Lamb of God. The bondage to sin and sorrow and silence gives way to shouts of joy and rejoicing. Why was the woman in chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, weeping at the feet of Jesus while wiping her feet, his feet with her hair? She was not crying because of her sin. She was crying because of the love of Christ and the the knowledge that she was completely forgiven. Who cares what all those other people said that were looking on and looking down their glasses and, and, and their noses at him? She knew she was forgiven by the Lord Jesus. And he even turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus just loved her and forgave her. The sins... The sorrows of the wicked in number shall abound, but those who trust Jehovah, his mercy shall surround. Then in the Lord be joyful, be glad in God, ye righteous. Rejoice, ye saints, rejoice. May the Lord give each of us the grace to unravel the cords of the bondage of sin and silence and sorrow with the graces of pardon and confession and rejoicing. Let's sing together as soon as I've prayed um, from hymn number 551, How Blessed is He Whose Trespass. Lord our God, thank you that you are 
a gracious, forgiving God. We would never, we would never expect such a thing. We deserve nothing of the sort. We find it hard even to forgive one another. We find it hard to believe that we're forgiven, especially before you. But you shower down your grace in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for it. We pray in his name. Amen.